It's time for the show that scours the globe for news that interests you. We've scoured a few other planets, too. Didn't find much. Coming to you almost live from their command center just beneath the Earth's crust, here's Jeremy Bray and Wesley Faulkner with Global Geek News. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Global Geek News Podcast. This is episode 67 of the Global Geek News Podcast, and in a very stormy Colorado, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my co-host, Wesley Faulkner. How's it going, Wesley? Things are going great. Uh, we're in the middle of the month, May's almost over, and then soon, half of the year is going to be gone before we know it. Yeah, this year seems to really be flying by. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, yeah. Things are... Moving right along, I guess. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. And to think, it was just back in August or whatever that I started school back again. Doesn't it? Certainly doesn't seem like that long. Mm-hmm. Actually, it might seem longer. Going to think about it. <laughs> but anyway, I heard you had some exciting stuff happen at AMD this week, or last oh. week, I should say. Yeah, last week was the big Vision launch, both desktop and laptops uh, and of course I had my software launch thank god uh, long time is over so fusion utility for mobility fusion utility for desktop and fusion media explorer 2.0 these are all 2.0 level software have all launched and I worked on all three projects I need to check that out cuz it seemed like when I watched the um, stream of the announcements and stuff last week they didn't mention that at all I don't think at least oh. not what I caught You'd be right. They did not mention any of those. I I figured it was going to be part of the whole announcement. I was expecting some kind of a big plug or something. Yeah, from that announcement, it was more on vendor platforms and their availability. It was PCs and form factors, less about internals, video cards, processors, or even software. So the focus was definitely on the partners. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. It seems to be a bit of a different direction for AMD. I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out, but it's definitely interesting to watch. Yeah, well, a good um, a good data point is that this is the most that they've ever launched at one time in AMD's history. They have, I think, over 70-plus design wins. Hmm. Yeah, it, I don't recall seeing it all, them saying okay, this is how many we're announcing, these are the exact models, anything like that. I'm guessing that was maybe something released in the press kit or something? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was an announcement, I guess, to go find the information yourself. Actually, I didn't see a lot of uh, people reporting on it either. Details were pretty slim. It seemed, it seemed more of a party than a press event. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a little disappointed. I was... Hoping to see some benchmarks or something like that. But then again, I'm a hardware enthusiast, so. Yeah. Well, they didn't allow questions from the crowd. And uh, I, I know some of the platforms were released that day, which was last Wednesday, and some are being released in the future. Um, be nice to know when uh, all the systems will become available. It's kind of like the new iPhone. when People don't want to buy a new one now, knowing that another one's coming out in a couple of months, or a couple of weeks, actually, possibly. 
Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how this whole change is going to work for them, because for those that didn't happen to catch the stream, it's basically they're leaving the whole gigahertz and cache and stuff like that behind, and basically branding the type of processors by what they're capable of doing, like video editing, gaming, stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious to see how accepting people are of this. Yeah, it's task-based marketing as opposed to spec-based. It's a weird experiment. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. I'm kind of curious to see just how that turns out. That's what I was kind of hoping to hear some launch dates and more specs and stuff, just because I'm kind of curious to see um, how these things are actually going to be able to handle what they say they're going to handle and how they're going to be accepted among people. Yeah. I can say from personal experience, uh, the laptop processors are extremely cool. Uh, I, I, I was very impressed on uh, how how their thermals are on the new, new processors, but um, I'm, I'm looking to actually, I'm in the market to buy a new laptop probably in the next few weeks. Not for myself, though, for my wife. Yeah, I'm kind of in the market probably in the next, oh, I'd say within the next six months for sure. Because the laptop I have now, the left mouse button doesn't work anymore. One of the hinge covers is broken. And Asus doesn't seem to understand what I mean when I say send me a hinge cover, not the hinge. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's had a decent life. It's I think it's just shy I think it's about a month shy of two years old. So it, it's had a decent life. And it still runs okay. It runs a little hot on occasion. But I'm certainly looking into something a little newer. And I, I'm, I'm even halfway considering a Mac just because of the battery life and stuff. And the fact that on my laptop, I don't really game all that much. I mean, I play the occasional game of Unreal Tournament 2004, but nothing real serious or anything that I would want... Uh, PC for gaming, and I can always put Windows 7 on a Mac anyway. Yeah, uh, Mac's a little price prohibitive for me. That that's the only thing that's um, keeping me from going that route. I it's like I want to move that direction to an extent, but at the same time, the price is just too high. So I may end up getting just a regular PC laptop for seven eight hundred bucks or something like that instead of spending. 1500 on a Mac. Yes. Uh, base that's entry level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one of the sad things about Mac is that's the entry level. Yeah. Unless you're wanting to get just a regular Mac book and then that's a thousand bucks for the entry level. But right. Anyway, those that want to follow along, you can find all of our show notes at globalgeeknews.com. I don't think I have any show notes in terms of the AMD stuff, but I might be able to find some of those or I'll let you guys find them. We'll see. Just depends on how nice I am. But anyway, all the show notes are at globalgeeknews.com so you can are free to follow along with us. And we and despite how little news there was last week, we actually have a full list of stories which normally I end up with like 20 some stories and have to whittle it down. This time I ended up with just enough stories. Starting with, apparently Nintendo's no-transfer policy 
could screw we the biggest Wii and DS fans. Yeah, I don't know how much of this is actually policy or um, more of a technical limitation uh, built into the system because they just didn't think that people would want to move games from system to system. Well, from the way I read it, since there's been people that if something has gone wrong with their Wii, they send it in, send in a new Wii with it, and Nintendo might be willing to transfer the games from one to the other. I would doubt that it's really a technical issue, so much as I'm guessing it's probably more of a licensing issue than anything else. Well, well, yeah, but I think they they send in the consoles just because there's no way to easily transfer them, so they have to physically override the system and credit basically credit and re-download the games that are on the first system to the second. There, it's all manual. There is no official way of doing it. So they say that it's, it's not their policy, but I just think it's a lack of policy because they don't have a facility to do it easily. Yeah, this is definitely a lack of foresight on their part. Essentially, if a Wii user wants to transfer the his internet, the games that he downloads on the internet from one machine to another, you can't do that. No, you can't. Uh, even if you save them onto SD card, the DRM prevents you from actually moving that to another console. Uh, with uh, They talk about the a new Black Wii that came out, and I actually saw it in the store today, uh, the Black Wii, priced exactly like the White Wii. I'm guessing it's just a cosmetic change. Um, if you decided to say, hey, I want black rather than the white one I have, you will not be able to move the all the games that you might have downloaded, no matter if it's in the hundreds of dollars or in the thousands of dollars to your new console. It has to stay there because it's tied to the console and because there's, there's not a user account on the Wii system. I think technically there is a Wii, uh, user account, but there's but the content isn't tied to the account. Yes. Well, I mean, there are Wii's, but the Wii's are are something you can make and 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 destroy at will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as in any uniqueness, as an account account, it's tied to the console. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I I think this could end up being a part of the um, video game bubble bursting, like we talked about last week. Which I kind of wish we'd done the show like a day sooner. So I could have said, hey, everybody, go and sell your Nintendo stock before it plummets. Because the morning we released the show, Nintendo stock plummeted, I don't know, a considerable percentage because the new numbers from MPD came out and sales fell through the floor. Yeah. And this is a good thing. Uh, I think we got a little cocky, or Nintendo... Uh, because they have overwhelming success with their consoles, especially their DS systems. And uh, we talked about the E3 showing last year and how they kind of just limped in there uh, with basically an appearance, not really releasing anything compelling. So hopefully, I don't know how they're going to play their their 3DS uh, system uh, or not, but if they're going to move, which it sounds like they are, towards more of a digital distribution for a lot of their content, this is something that they're going to have to fix. Yeah, I'm hoping with um, E3 coming in the next couple of weeks, they'll have some kind of an announcement as far as being able to 
transfer your digitally downloaded content and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a simple fix. Uh, allow people, when you do a system upgrade, to migrate the, the system property kind of like you do with iTunes. You validate the game to that system, and then you can give it to maybe four or five systems, some sort of way of online validation. Yeah, it'll, I'm kind of curious to see how soon they fix this. I'm sure they'll probably fix it at some point, but I'm kind of curious to see how long it'll take them. Because the PS3 and the 360 don't have this problem. If you need to re-download something again, you can re-download it. There may be a certain number of times before you actually have to contact the company, but you can re-download it. You can transfer stuff from one hard drive to another. I did that myself, I don't know, I guess it's probably about three weeks ago when I swapped out the 20 gigabyte hard drive on my 360 to a was it a I think it's a 256 gigabyte drive and that was pretty easy I just hooked it up to a couple of cables and away the transfer went so and and I know with the PS3 you can back up all your data throw in a new hard drive and restore the data pretty it's pretty easy to do but speaking of well, um, downloaded games and stuff like that. If you re- if you buy a used game, apparently EA Sports is going to charge you ten dollars to play online. Yeah, with the the new model they're instituting uh, around around all their titles is that on the manual is actually going to be a code that you have to type in into the game to gain access to the online component of the game, and it's a one time use code. So so if the game is rented, in order for you to get access to the online content, uh, you have the option of using a seven-day free trial, trial, but after that, you have to pay $10 to gain a, a new code to put in so you can access the online component of the game. Yeah, this, this whole thing seems a little screwy to me. I mean, I completely understand it, but at the same time, it seems like it screws pretty much anybody that sells used games like a GameStop. I believe Amazon sells used games. Game Crazy, which from what I understand they'll be closing down here in the next couple of weeks anyway, so that won't matter. But for like the GameStops and stuff, it's really going to hurt them because their their profits largely come from used game sales. They only get a small cut of new game sales compared to a used game They'll buy a game for ten bucks, turn around and sell it for fifty bucks, and that—that's quite the profit margin they have. And if this is a way of from EA saying, "Hey, forget the used games, buy the new games," that kind of leaves them out in the cold, even though they're the ones going to be able to sell these ten-dollar one-time use codes. Yeah, well, apparently GameStop, GameStop is uh, on board with this deal. Um, but the main concern I have, or the objection I should say, is that the game companies, or, Nintendo, or EA specifically, is saying that they're not seeing a dime for the people who are using their network. Um, but I was lis- listening to BOL today, and someone made a good point saying, um, you are seeing a dime, because when someone sells it used, they're basically passing on the license that they use. To, to have to or or the fee that they pay for online online access, they're just transferring it to another user. 
So they're, they're not paying any for every copy they sell. Sell, they're paying for that copy to be online. So when it passes to another person, it doesn't increase their user pool online. So thus, it shouldn't increase the cost. Yeah, they're essentially trying to trick people into saying, "Oh, hey, you should pay this extra ten dollar charge." Because it'll make more users on our network that we're not getting paid for, even though that's not true because they got paid for it in the first place. Yeah. The big question is, are they now going to have a phone support for people who've lost their manuals or for people who've typed in their code and it's not working? It says used before, even though it's a sealed case. Or um, they're not going to use the game anymore and they're returning it and they want a refund. Uh, their online play, the system goes down when they're trying to sign in. Uh, once you have people pay for online services, you, the 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 minimum bar of satisfaction is raised dramatically. People want to have a number. They want to be able to call someone, and especially when you're dealing with additional money. I mean, parents are going to be wondering, uh, hey, um, I bought this game for my kid. Why do I have to pay more to get online? Uh, they're, they're opening a whole new world of pain and headache with this. Yeah, I think it's going to come back to haunt them. And, well, and when you go and buy a used game, a lot of the times people buy it just because they're cheaper. Most of the time, with the GameStop or whatever, it's usually only about 5 bucks cheaper, maybe 10 bucks. But if you're saying on top of what you're already paying, you have to pay 10 bucks. You could end up paying more than you would for a used game, or at least the same. So it kind of takes away the whole incentive of buying a used game in the first place, or a used EA game. To yeah. be more specific, you still might buy a used game, but just maybe uh, make e- kill the secondary market for EA, and maybe even the primary market is if the secondary market dries up then the resale value is is going to go down dramatically too. And so if I am in a, in a habit of buying a game, playing it for three, six months or whatever, and then selling it to uh, GameStop, and GameStop says, oh, it's an EA game, we don't sell many of those, so we'll give you five bucks for it. Mm-hmm. I, I, think the, I think the next time you buy a game, you're like, oh, crap, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get any of that money back. I'm not going to buy any EA games anymore. This is why I generally don't buy EA games unless it's a franchise that I absolutely love, like a Command and Conquer. Even then, I still didn't purchase the last game. Lucky me, I managed to get copies of it anyway. Um, Or maybe a Burnout. Those are probably about the only two franchises anymore that I care the least bit about that they make. Otherwise, I don't mess with any of their games anymore because they're just destroying the gaming industry and everything that it should be with with stupid stuff like this. Yeah, well, that's case in point. I think you're just proving the argument saying that moves like this is going to sour their audience against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of gaming, apparently Microsoft could be charging $200 for Project Natal. Yeah, one vendor is saying that's how much it's going to cost. Um Microsoft has re- remarked it, saying that they haven't released any pricing, e- even to vendors. So um, that two hundred dollars is still a guess. Um, it seems to be apparently significantly over the fifty dollars that was previously estimated. But still, I think 
$200 is not out of the range of possibilities depending on the package. For instance, doesn't Rock Band cost uh, over $100? Mm, I'm not sure. I've never purchased Rock Band or Guitar Hero or anything like that. Yeah. So those are accessories, but if this is more like a, a Wii Fit, where it comes with a starter pack and some really compelling games, or, um, or Wii Sports... There could be plenty of compelling games that ship with it. Uh, I do too think two hundred dollars is is towards the near top of how much uh, a consumer would pay for it. I would say probably one twenty nine would probably be a good price point. Yeah, I was thinking ninety nine would probably be right about the perfect price point. But I'll be right back. Hang on for one second. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, I think the. $99 price point would be a, about right. I know the early speculation, if I remember right, was about $200 for the Project Natal, and I'm sure in terms of R&D costs, it would probably be about right that it would be 200 bucks. but I don't think you'd see much in the way of adoption at that price. Right, when you're talking about that the accessory is about the same price as the console. Um, but then again, we could also be talking, how much do they charge for that hard drive the, separately? Isn't it quite cost, costly? Mm, I want to say I paid like 120 for it, I think. Yeah, Maybe? yeah. Something like that. So it's, not, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that Natal could be around that same price point. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if it's around there. But I don't know, I'm kind of... As much as I'm curious to see the potential of Natal, I'm wondering if there's going to be a big problem in that it takes up, I think, like a quarter of the resources of the 360 itself. So developers are really going to have to knock their games down a notch so that it can take advantage of Natal and still run smoothly. Yeah. Yes, probably. That, that, that is definitely going to be a constraint. But also, that lends to uh, a new tier of an Xbox 360 with maybe more, even more RAM or more processor speed and bundled with Natal, which I wouldn't put it out there as saying a $400 price point for uh, an Elite Plus or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doubting that we'd see a whole nother system until the next version of the Xbox. From my understanding of various things that Steve Ballmer has said that he maybe didn't mean to say, is that there's definitely a bundle coming that you can get in a tall with it. But who knows how much more expensive that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely see a bundle. Yeah, I, I was watching a presentation that he did down in like Argentina or something like that about two weeks ago where they kind of unveiled the next version of MSN Live Messenger and stuff like that, which that part I didn't really see because it was all in Spanish and I couldn't really understand any of it. But I did listen to his part of the presentation and he did let it slip that there would be a bundle with Natal. But I'm I'm sure we'll probably hear more about that in uh, at E3 in like three weeks. I think that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, so rumors are saying that what, October this year, supposedly, 
Yeah, so there's going to be announce- yeah, announcements at E3 to say when the exact date, but October, November, maybe. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the price point is. So, I, I think it's going to be... I'm not sure what kind of games we're even going to see on it. I, I've got a feeling it's probably going to be more casual games rather than not real hardcore um, Gears of War type of game, but who knows? That'll be interesting to watch. Well, if the games are available and you want to try to try them out for free, you definitely aren't going to be able to get them on the Pirate Bay. Yeah, uh, one other thing. Um, generally speaking... Bad transition. <laughs> yeah. Generally speaking, I always watch the major presentations at E3, the Microsoft, the Sony, and Nintendo. I plan on doing that again this year, assuming I can find a free stream, and in which case I will live blog all of those on globalgeeknews.com for those that want to stay up to date on those as they happen. But yes, you won't be able to get much on the Pirate Bay, at least not for probably the next day or so, as thanks to some legal pressure from all the major studios, they have been taken down yet again. Yeah, their uh, was it their provider has gotten some letters of action saying that they would be fined liable if they did not remove access to the internet to the Pirate Bay. So they did that. So they discontinued service to the Pirate Bay. Now Pirate Bay is looking for an alternate service provider provider in order to get back online. And they said that's going to be happening uh, in the near future. They won't be down for long. Yeah, apparently they're already in the middle of the move, I guess, as soon as they heard about the injunction or whatever that came about last week, that they initiated whatever procedures they have for finding a new ISP, which it's just the connection to their site or whatever that they're looking for. The servers, and in this case it's a company in Germany, whoever owns the Cyber Bunker, which I'm guessing it's pronounced CB3ROB, I guess is the name of the company. But apparently no no one still knows where their servers are actually located now. This is just kind of a who the provider is. So I don't think we're at risk of seeing the servers go bye-bye or anything like that. This is just a case of they have to find some new pipes to get out there. Right, and uh, I just checked, and at the time of recording, the Pirate Bay is still down. Yeah, it was up until yesterday, and then I think it got hit with the injunction or whatever this morning, and their current ISP fully intends to stand up for the Pirate Bay. It's just they're honoring the injunction while their legal team looks over the injunction to see what kind of appeal they can go after, and then they might bring it back up, although by that point the the Pirate Bay may have a new ISP and it may not be a big deal. Yeah, when this is over, the Pirate Bay can really write a book on how to have the most robust and resilient network um, to prevent this from happening from anyone else, because uh, they're going to be battle-tested and they're going to be hardened against these type of takedown notices in the future. Yeah, I'm kind of, I don't know, it makes me sad this time around because we don't have the typical Pirate Bay crew that's doing this. I mean, Peter Sunday's off 
doing his own thing with his own company now. Uh, no, I can't think of the other guy's name. Godfried is doing something different. It's like all of the guys are all that made it so hilarious to watch the first time around are now all doing something different and they're supposedly no longer involved with the Pirate Bay. So I don't think we're going to see much of the really witty, funny stuff this time around, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, They're laying low, and I'm guessing um, it could be because the flame has been ratcheted up so much more than it was before. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. I'm kind of curious to see just how long they're down. Even when they were raided by the police, they were only down, what, three days? Uh-huh. So I'm kind of curious to see if this has them down any longer than that. Well, it looks like uh, their compadres are having some severe problems with the law also. Yeah, this one kind of surprised me to an extent, but apparently LimeWire has been chopped up by the RIAA after a massive in after they're found liable for massive infringement. Right. This was a summary judgment. This was not the full case. Uh, but the judge felt that because of a significant amount of their statistician, um, so the statistician sample that they took, statistical sample that they took, was mostly uh, believed to be deemed copyrighted material. They thought that the site was, it was their primary purpose and held the company as well as the CEO liable for the uh, copyrighted materials that are on their network. Yeah, I, from the way it kind of sounds like LimeWire didn't even really get a chance to present their case or anything, which I think usually summary judgments and stuff, that's usually kind of what happens when the defendant doesn't show up or something, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, we had this this uh, this uh, talk about the RIAA and how you could on a previous podcast, how you could save money by just not showing up because the summary judgment was capped at $500. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if they just didn't show up or uh, the judge just just decided to only look into evidence what was presented and and uh, there was no object- objection for summary judgment. Yeah, apparently they looked at the case and I guess there was records of, like, LimeWire emails and stuff where they did nothing meaningful to stop piracy other than basically when you launch the program or install it, it's like, use this for pirate activity. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so this was just the judgment. This was There's no fines or penalties levied uh, until uh, a discussion on June 1st in which uh, LimeWire will be able to to talk to the judge and and uh, I don't know if they can appeal at that po- point, submit new evidence, or just basically try to get out of it in person. Well, in, in the end, I don't. I really don't think it's going to have that big of an impact. I mean, compared to like BitTorrent and stuff, LimeWire numbers are way down there anyway. But LimeWire, last I knew, unless something's changed, still depends on the. Oh, Gorkster Network, I believe it is, which is not really part of LimeWire. LimeWire is just mm-hmm. kind of an interface into the network. Right. But 
even if LimeWire was to go away, the network would still be there. You can still use applications like FrostWire, which is when you compare the two, I find FrostWire to be a lot better. It's not so bloated, ads and whatnot. But you'll still be able to get access to the content. It's just the LimeWire program will probably go to where it's no longer supported or you can't officially download it or anything like that. And also, whatever happened to Safe Harbor? Why do they not have Safe Harbor in this case? Because it's not their network. It's just uh, it's all user-gen or user-contributed sources. So why are they being held liable? Um, didn't we read like in a previous story that if you moderated your comments, you could be held liably, liable? So if you start moderating the torrents that you show in your search results, how can uh, that sounds like that'd be worse than not doing anything at all? Yeah, actually, we ended up not doing that story, as I recall. I think that was uh, maybe the show that Walt was on, and that was one of the stories that was just a little on the hard to understand side. So I just kind of skipped over it. Okay, but and that was out of the UK, yeah. But from if I remember right, in this story, it said that there was like emails where the LimeWire team said where you could get illegal content and stuff like that. So I think that's largely why the whole safe harbor thing didn't come into play. But speaking of safe harbor... Well, the thing is, even still, the even if I see something that says that looks like copyrighted content, are you allowed to take it down unless someone complains? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how... Since, since it appears that they didn't get to really put on much of a defense, I'm I'm not sure how that stuff will play on appeal. I, okay. I've got a feeling they might be able to get away with it, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see what happens on June 1st. Yeah, well, speaking of safe harbor and stuff like that, apparently in Germany, if you leave your Wi-Fi network open and somebody uses it to download a copyright infringing material, you're facing a 100 euro fine. Yeah, this is interesting. So there's little, this is basically has to be password protected. They don't say whether it has to be WEP or uh, WPA. Um, but also, you would think if it's going to be illegal to leave it unlocked, that they would just make it also for any manufacturer shipping routers in Germany, that they should come out of the factory locked. Well, I know a lot of internet providers around here, especially with like Quest, I've noticed it more so with them than any others because I don't get much experience other than them and Comcast around here. But with their branded routers, which I'm not sure whose routers they actually take and then brand it for themselves or whatever, I don't recall. But from what they have, they always have... Web automatically enabled, and then they'll have like a little sticker underneath the router that has the default web key unless you change it to something else yourself. So if they have something like that, that'd probably be okay. But you know, this this is one of those things that it makes a lot of sense, but at the same time, for those people that like to run an open Wi-Fi hotspot for their neighbors in their apartment building or whatever then it 
it's really going to hurt people like that. But at the same time, I, it seems to me like you could easily get around this by either A, sharing the password with everybody, or B, just setting the SSID to the password is, insert password. Mm-hmm. That, that seems to be like a quick and easy way around it. Yeah. Very interesting how they say one year if it's open Wi-Fi connection. Um, but yeah, that's that's just. I'm guessing this will be rare. Uh, but I mean, how can someone even know that it would be open? If someone says, "Hey, you," someone was running on your network, and you could say they hacked in. You mm-hmm. could put a password after the fact. Say, "Oh, they must have hacked in because I had a password." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of curious to see just how far this is going to go, because I've got a feeling that this is just kind of the beginning as to where next thing they're going to say, well, you're going to have to restrict Mac addresses so that it's only your devices or the devices of whoever's name is on the Internet account that gets to have access to the Internet and not your neighbors or whatever. Well, some of this is going to go away with IPv6 since uh, all... Uh, I, all addresses will be unique to a device, so I think some of this is going to go away with that rollout. Yeah, hopefully things, hopefully that'll actually get rolled out in time, because by the rate things are going, we're all going to be in a lot of IPv4 trouble here real soon. Right. Well, new devices will anyway. Yeah. Well, I I, I don't know. I, that's going to be one of those things where. How often do the IP addresses get leased out for? Because there may be times when, like, on my BlackBerry or whatever, where I don't go on the web or do any data stuff for a couple of days, does that mean I lose my IP address and have to hope that I get a new one when I want to use it? That That's going to be one of those big issues, I think. Yeah, that's going to be an ISP issue in which you call and complain to them. Yeah. Speaking of ISPs, apparently Time Warner is trying to put the brakes on a massive piracy case coming from the U.S. copyright group. Yeah, they're coming off as the good guy here, but I think part of it is uh, they don't want to spend the money to to satisfy all the requests they, they get. Um, so apparently um, some DA or some... some uh, Lawyer requested over 2,000 uh, IP addresses that are on the Time Warner network, and they're like, hey, we only have four people working in that department, and right now we're handling terrorist cases, kidnap cases, uh, harassment cases, and it's going to cost, and it costs us $45 per request, and you're just going to have to wait in line. And in fact, they're doing more than that and asking the judge to reject the subpoenas. Yeah. To me, this seems like maybe this is Time Warner's excuse because they have a horribly inefficient system. I don't see why only four people can manage to look up, on average, 567 IP addresses a month. That seems to be a really low number. But yeah, especially... especially when, go ahead. Well, stuff like this, you'd think, okay, look up an IP address and it'll automatically pull up all the stuff in the database according to that IP address, look up the time, or cross-reference the time, and say, oh, that's his, that's so-and-so's account. And boom, you have it. It shouldn't, 
something like that shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes, or less as long as they make it sound like it takes. Yeah, you would think that they would say, okay, give us your IP addresses in a CSV file. We'll put the CSV file in, and then we'll be able to, you know, put add another column that has the name. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like they've they really need to kind of do their system a little bit better. But apparently, as far as they're concerned, if they were to handle this, these this 200 or 2,094 person lawsuit, just to look up all those, it would take their four full-time people like three to four months to come up with all of the results from all of that. And that's if they didn't do any lookups for anybody else, not for law enforcement, not for other ISPs, anything. Yeah, and also what they're asking for, instead of one subpoena for 2,049 anonymous uh, IP addresses, they said they want a subpoena for each one individually um, because they, they, they're more worried about the, about the level of flow, it seems, of how often or how big the requests are rather than fulfilling the requests for the most part. Yeah, apparently the U.S. copyright group, on average, sends them only 28 IP address lookups a month. And then all of a sudden there's this huge flood of them. But it seems like the U.S. copyright group seems to be getting a few more major clients. And I think this is going to be a big test of their whole new mass lawsuit um, business model that they seem to have adopted. This case being with the movie Far Cry... The other major one being, um, oh, what was the one that won the Oscar whatever, Hurt Locker. That's it. Mm -hmm. And where they're supposed to be filing tens of thousands of subpoenas and lawsuits and stuff for those. But if they're going to get major resistance from ISPs like this, I think that it's going to end up causing them more problems than it's worth. Because the way that Time Warner's pointing it out, it's that, and I really don't see a difference here, they don't really spell it out, in that with the RIAA, they file thousands of lawsuits at a time, yet they're saying that somehow this is different and should be um, executed as 2,094 separate lawsuits or subpoenas or whatever, so that each one has to have like their own court filing fees and everything attached to it, rather than everything just done in one big lump sum. And essentially they're just trying to make it where it's financially not in the best interest of the U.S. copyright group or whoever their client is, because if they were supposed, if they were going to look it up, it cost them 45 bucks, so they're just going to turn around and say, oh, hey, why don't you pay court fees on each of these? So it's not so it's so we're not going to be the only ones where it right. costs us money. Or worst case, they pass it on to the customers. Yeah, yeah. This is I'm kind of curious to see just how this plays out with their different excuses of we don't have the resources, they should be filed separately, and and stuff like that. I'm really kind of curious to see just how this plays out. Yeah, this will be interesting. I mean, I, even though it sounds like Time Warner's looking for their self-interest, it's good to see that um, their self-interest 
at least at this time, aligns with their customers' interests also. Yeah, that's got to be a first, considering they're the ones that wanted to put a 40-gigabyte cap on everybody. Yeah. Well, at least they didn't roll that out, which is good. Yeah. Well, speaking of piracy, apparently, globally speaking, software piracy rates are down. Yeah. Um, it, it makes sense. Mostly, it's it's down uh, in the major companies, it's, uh, countries. It's up in few, but uh, on a whole, it seems like we have a decrease. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when I saw these numbers, especially considering the economic downturn. You'd think that would drive more people to piracy, although I think instead that's probably driving more people to free services like Hulu or even YouTube. But apparently in only 19 countries, piracy of software rose, but it fell in 54 countries. Still, there's a 2% increase globally, but at least that's some progress in a lot of, com- in a lot of countries. Yeah, I think when, when the economy first had problems, Movie, movie movie ticket sales and the box office sales actually went up. And so it makes sense that uh, the small incidentals, the, 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 the small uh, fun things in life of recreation would be impacted less. Thus, even the, the larger ticket items will go down, but still smaller ticket items will still be purchased and even purchased at a greater quantity. Uh, hence, Piracy going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it seems to me that there's getting to be a lot more use of open source software or mm-hmm. cloud-based software that is free or a whole lot cheaper. So in the past, where you have somebody like me who would go out and say I'd want to get a copy of um, Photoshop or whatever... I don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on it. Well, now there's a lot of free or cheaper alternatives that'll do a lot of the basic things that you need to do, like cropping, maybe changing a little bit of a tint of a color of a picture or something like that. Something that's just real simple. You're not trying to do any real major, major editing or whatever. And those free or really cheap alternatives are making it as to where instead of people going out and pirating software that's worth several hundred dollars a copy, they're just using a, these alternatives. Yeah, well, what they say is that uh, through adversity is the, the birthplace of development or something like that. Um, that basically, when you have problems, that's when you start thinking harder and coming up with new ways of solving them. And that might just be the same case as, as what you're demonstrating. Yeah, I mean, I I whenever I've gotten a copy of Photoshop, it's always for one reason or another. and usually it's just kind of a oh hey let me check this out. I've never really used it heavily. I did try to take a class on it at one point. The class was so horrible that after about a week I I gave up on it. But whenever I go after software that's several hundred dollars that I know I'm not going to be using it in any major way. I'll just go and pirate it just because it's not something I'm using to make money or anything. If it's something like Visual Studio where, yeah, I may be using it to write my own software, possibly sell it or whatever, 
yeah, I'll definitely go buy that. And I, I don't think I've ever pirated a Microsoft product, even though they send they tend to be one of the worst ones in that a copy of Office will cost you three hundred and fifty bucks or whatever. But I, I think it's largely a price thing more than anything. And now that there's getting to be more alternatives, I think we're going to start to see these rates fall in most in most countries. Mm-hmm. But anyway, speaking of software, apparently a UK court has found a software company liable for soft for the defects in its software. Yeah, I didn't look at the exact details of this, but it seems like it was more industrial software, like a hotel booking software, rather than just um, someone buying uh, a a Word alternative. So apparently the software promised higher efficiencies uh, and higher booking rates, something that they did not deliver on, which is, but this is kind of scary because this is a slippery slope, even though that it was found that this one case, they didn't do what they said. Um, companies could be found liable for all kinds of software, and it may not be limited to just commercial software. This could spread into the open source movement. Yeah, I think this kind of opens a whole big can of worms that nobody wants to see open. And, and from the sounds of it, I'm not sure whether this was necessarily the fault of the software company for making it sound like their product would work great for these hotels or the fault of the hotels for not being intelligent enough to realize that that the system isn't going to work for what they wanted it to work for or something like that I mean this I'm not sure who the blame really lies on here also um what is the cap on damages? Is it future sales that they promote, per, um, that they said they were going to get, meaning that they said, well, we'll increase your sales by X amount, so are they entitled to X amount in this lawsuit, or is it just for the price of the software that they purchased, or is it beyond that? Uh, I don't know what the, the, the cap on liability would be for a case like this. Yeah, I don't know. I've never, I don't think I've ever really seen a case like this, which kind of makes this a little bit scary because I'm sure we'll start seeing people now suing all over the place. Oh no, Microsoft has a new um, security hole. Let's sue them because there's a software defect and it could potentially harm us or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, this this is going to, I have a feeling this is going to turn real ugly unless this gets overturned on appeal. But I don't know. It, 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 I'm get, it seems like the people that ran the hotel aren't that intelligent because most people if you're going to be making a major switch like apparently their booking software system or whatever you generally want to set up with the software company some kind of a trial like a one month trial or something like that to make sure everything's going to work you could give them feedback stuff like that and in case there's anything that you need to be customized for you or whatever, you don't just jump in and say, "Oh, here's a whole bunch, here's a whole wad of cash for your software. Thank you, goodbye." Yeah, yeah. If you if you have 
usually this thing called SLA, which is service level agreement. You say, I pay you for a certain level of service, and if it's below that service, uh, then you guys start paying me or give me a dramatic dis- discount. And if a company wanted to have that type of software insurance, assurance, they should have some sort of contract that's stipulated as such. Uh, I don't know if there was in this case, but either way, it sounds like they shouldn't be suing the software. They should be suing the company for providing crappy software, which is from the title, it seems it's slanted more of it's the software, not the, the crappy company. Yeah, and part of this has to deal with the whole EULA in that the EULA says the software company can't be sued for any performance issues or whatever. But And that was kind of found to be in violation of whatever Consumer Protection Act of... Uh, let me... Uh, let's see. The, goods, the Sale of Goods Act... Or of 1979 or whatever, or was that the right one? It seems like maybe there is another act that they specified. Anyway, um, basically, that it the EULAs can't be written in such a way that they're extremely one-sided or whatever. They can't take away a whole bunch of rights that the that should belong to the other side of the legal agreement and stuff like that, and that was kind of what happened here in that the software company put in their EULA, hey, you can complain about it through our technical support channels, but you can't sue us about it, and that was part of the reason they got sued, which, if you, when you look at this EULA stuff, you can pretty much put anything in there, and likely it's not going to, if it's Anything like that, it's not going to hold up anyway. Yeah, uh, EULA's basically uh, legal wrangling to try to uh, indemnify the company from any liability whatsoever. I'm, there's still uh, a question on whether or not how much that is going to be upheld by the court. Um, but uh, this is a testament that's saying that, at least in the UK, the EULA doesn't hold its weight in water. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see where this goes from here, and I'm also very scared to see where this goes from here. And I'm kind of curious if this something like this is going to turn up in the U.S. now, because right now this is only in the U.K., but if it happens there, I wouldn't be too surprised to see it happen here very shortly. Right. But anyway, uh, two more stories. Let's see, second to last one. Apparently, the FCC is finally tackling bill shock. Yeah, speaking of the European Union, the FCC is trying to borrow a page from their book in consumer protection and allowing consumers to set some sort of cutoff time or to prevent basically being overcharged or being charged more than what is expected by the customer without alerting the customer first. Yeah, they're basically wanting to avoid all these cases of where people end up where they go on vacation for a couple of days, they use their iPhone or whatever for all kinds of data, their data plan doesn't support a huge amount of data, they come home to a $24,000 phone bill. That, that That's kind of what they're looking to prevent here. 
by and they're trying to see what the best way is to implement that. Is it a text message to whoever saying, hey, you've hit your limit. Anything above this is going to cost you a whole lot of money or just how it's going to work. And for phone-related stuff, that would probably work. But what if you have like a MiFi 3G card or whatever? How are you going to... Yeah, how are you going to notify them and say, hey, you've reached your limit or whatever? Are you going to have some kind of a special... IM client or something like that or just how that's going to work so that people don't end up with these humongous phone bills every month. Yeah, I think it's proposed actually they'll cut them off. They'll just suspend your service at that point if you do reach this upper limit that you predefine that it, it will just discontinue your service and you'll have to call them I guess to get it reinstated. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see where this goes. I what I'm really shocked by is the fact that the FCC has taken this many years to finally even look into the matter when, for I don't know how many years now, you hear the occasional story. I There was even one on the front page of Yahoo today where after four years of fighting, a guy has finally gotten Verizon to um, forgive his $18,000 phone bill that his son racked up, although... Apparently, Verizon still hasn't gone far enough because it's still hurting his credit rating. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. So they're taking public comments. So if you if you listeners have any feedback for the FCC, make sure you send them a, send them, send them a note. Yeah, this I'll be interested to see how this one plays out. I might even send them a comment as well. I don't usually... I think there's maybe only been one other time that I sent him a comment and I think that may have been on the whole Comcast uh, net neutrality type stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, if you're, especially if you're personally affected or might be personally affected by some of this stuff, you definitely need to contact the FCC and, and voice your opinion on how you want this stuff to work. Or Yes. Or if you've had this happen to you before, share your experience with them so they can learn from it and help prevent it the next time. But in our final story, our happy birthday story of the day, YouTube is five years old and serving two billion videos per day. Yeah, this is insane. They've grown grown leaps and bounds. They're the second biggest search engine out there and the third biggest site overall. I kind of... Surprise! I'd be kind of curious to know what the um, number of hits are for the first two biggest sites if they're getting two billion views a day. Although I'm sure that's a lot of largely embedded videos and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, well, the two biggest sites would be Facebook and Google. <clears throat> Is Facebook bigger than YouTube now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Facebook's number one. Google's number two. <coughs> YouTube's number three. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I need to pay a little bit more attention to the rankings lately. This is, of course, according to Alexa. But, yeah, for their fifth birthday, they announced all kinds of different statistics and stuff. Some of them that are kind of really surprising. Not only is there 2 billion views a day, but 70% of YouTube traffic comes from outside of the U.S. 
and wow. it's apparently localized in 23 countries across 24 different languages, which I didn't even realize that. Yeah, which is good. Uh, I've I've come across foreign videos a couple of times on YouTube too, um, uh, but I thought those were random. I didn't realize that 70 percent uh, were coming are, are usually from outside the U.S. I wonder if that's just viewers, 70 percent, or actually content producers. I want to see what that is. Yeah, I don't know. There's certainly some more statistics that I'd really like to see. But yeah, I don't usually see too much that of content that like isn't in English or whatever. Or at least there's like um, uh, captions in English or something like that. I don't usually see like too much Japanese stuff or whatever. So I'm not. I'm kind of curious to know if each of these different localized versions of the site are basically kind of self-contained and they keep all the stuff from their country or exactly how that works, just because I never really seem to come across any of this other content. Yeah. So one thing is clear. Is that the site is hugely successful, at least for the customers that use it. Um, there's still a question on whether or not it's profitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think they seem to mention anything money-wise. They're saying that the average person spends about 15 minutes per day on the site and that 100 years of video have been scanned for copyright man- by copyright management technology, content ID, stuff like that, every single day. Right, and as of now, it'll take you 1,700 years to watch the entire inventory that's currently on YouTube. Yeah, that that's... a crazy. They're saying that 24 hours of video is uploaded every minute. Yeah, that's insane. That's that's why uh, it's hard to go through all those videos for copyright infringement. It's going to take some time. Yeah, at that point, if it was me, I'd just give up completely. <laughs> but that would be just me. Yeah, that, that's it's certainly some amazing statistics, that's for sure. Yeah, happy birthday, YouTube. Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd like to start doing more stuff with YouTube myself, but uh, I, I need to find some good video editing software. So if anybody happens to know of any, feel free to link me to some. I don't know, I think there's some in the new version of Ubuntu or whatever, and I still have yet to install the new version of the newest version of Kubuntu, Hopefully I'll get that sometime this week and try out the video editing software on there. Although I'm kind of curious to see if it's going to work with my flip camera. I would hope so. Yeah, I would think so, just because the flips are kind of popular, but I don't know. But anyway, we are about three minutes over time as it is, and we still haven't even hit the tips of the week yet. All right, so, let's move on to those. Yeah, so for those that want to... Check out all the details of the story that we stories that we didn't get to, or want to check out the tips of the week. You can go to globalgeeknews.com. We have what is it, four or five tips this week, starting with how to reclaim your privacy on Facebook. Uh, if you're one of the people that's been real worried about your privacy on Facebook, especially with all the new. Uh, um, open graph stuff and every, and the instant personalization stuff, you might want to check this out to see about getting your privacy back before you are one of the people that go off the deep end and just completely delete your Facebook account. 
which is it, isn't it like the last day of the month is the official delete your Facebook account day. Uh, I know there's a Facebook protest in June, uh, but I don't think it's the last day unless we're talking about two different things. I, I think we were talking about two different things because I think on like the 31st of this month, there's a movement of instead of like quit smoking day, it's quit Facebook day. And last I heard, there was like 3,000 people signed up. So it's not really going to do a thing to Facebook. That's probably about as many people as are going to sign up within about an hour. Or if that. So I don't think that's really going to do much. But if you want to go that route, you're more than welcome to. To be honest, I kind of would like to myself. Not for privacy reasons. I'm just kind of tired of Facebook. But that's just kind of how I connect with a lot of friends, family friends from many years ago and stuff like that. Actually, I'm kind of looking to get rid of Twitter, but everybody still seems to be there to some extent, although I'm, after three years, I'm kind of tired of it and I'd like something new, but so far I haven't really seen anything new that kind of satisfies that urge. But anyway, for those that are bloggers out there, got a blog post checklist for things to look at before hitting publish. Like, did you read your post after you wrote it to check for, make sure it actually says what you wanted to say, spelling errors, grammar errors, stuff like that. Um, Is your post as complete as it could be? Did you do research? Did you research related keywords for SEO optimization, stuff like that? Did you craft the title carefully? Um, Did you link to older posts? Did you link to external resources? Are all the links working? Um, all kinds of different stuff. And do you have like an image attached to the blog post, which I find that a lot of people tend to like, which is something that I really need to do more often of. Actually, I need a blog also too. But anyway, if you're a blogger, that's a good little list to check out. Uh, Next one being how to land your dream job using Google AdWords. This is this one we probably could have had as a story, but apparently there was a guy and I didn't really read through all of it. I've heard about it on other sources and stuff. Apparently, a guy was looking for his dream job. He targeted the vanity searches of the HR people from companies that he wanted to work for. So whoever the hiring person is at company who wanted to work for he bought google adwords so that whenever they did went and did a vanity search they would see his ads up there that he wanted a job with him and he ended up landing a job that way so if you're looking for a job that might be one way to go uh second to last tip of the week is for hiding secret files in office 2007 documents not sure if this works with Office 2010 documents, they still use the docx file format, so I would assume so, but if you're looking for a way of hiding some files, maybe you don't want somebody to see them, you're trying to sneak something past security or whatever, might be worth checking out for how to hide files inside of your Office 2000 document files. And I think we've maybe even had a tip of the week back towards the early part of the show where it was about hiding 
files inside of like JPEG images. I think this is essentially the same thing. Uh, and our final tip of the week is how to get the most out of offline networking events. So if, if you're going to lots of conferences and stuff, or if you're doing lots of tweet-ups or whatever, gives you some good tips for um, making the most out of like meet and greets, how do your how you're doing your follow-ups, staying organized, staying in contact with people, stuff like that. So if you're wanting to make the most out of your offline networks, that would be the resource to check out. And like I said, you can find all of these at globalgeeknews.com, as well as all of our past shows. I know just from doing the tracking on the shows, there's a lot of people that go back and listen to past episodes of the show. They can be, some are even a couple of years old that they'll go back and listen to, which is, I think is pretty cool. And I don't think I mentioned it when I actually did it on the site, but now it's a little bit more friendly to people that use screen readers. So if you're blind or whatever, there's now specifically a link that says download the MP3 or download the show or, or something to that extent. So that way, because from my understanding is a lot of screen readers have issues with the Flash-based player that we have on there. Plus, I know that um, stuff like that doesn't work on like iPads and stuff. So that is now on there for those that would like to use it. And I think that's just about it. Don't forget to support the show. There's always the... $5 a month donation button on the in the show notes. There's also the donation button at the top of the site which allows you to name your own amount and anything $100 or above gets you a free Global Geek News t-shirt. And don't forget you can leave any comments, suggestions, hate mail, whatever in the comments at globalgeeknews.com. You can always get a hold of us on Twitter with twitter.com slash globalgeeknews or I am at PCNerd37 or I can get a hold of Wesley who's at Wesley83. Feel free to talk about talk to us about anything we talked about in the show or suggestions for future shows or guests you'd like to see or whatever. And I think that's pretty much it unless you can think of anything that I'm forgetting. Oh no, that seems to cover it all. Okay. I always usually forget at least one thing where I end up going to bed at night and it's like, oh, crap, I know I forgot something, and that's what I forgot. Usually it's to plug for donations or something. Hmm. But anyway, we're way over on time. We're uh, Yeah, we're about like 11 minutes over on time, it looks like. By the time I slap the intros and stuff on, it'll be probably close to 13 minutes. So I guess that's it for this week, and we will see you guys next week. Don't forget to check out globalgeeknews.com, and we will see you later.